welcome again to Lost in Science. Now, like Marty McFly, this week we were out of time. So, look, we jumped back in the DeLorean and headed all the way back to 2019, uh, a long distant time, which some of you may remember as being the before times. And on the show this week, we've got Chris talking to Dr. Mark Edmonds about his research into topological switching we have a very early appearance from Catriona uh, talking to Claire about her PhD research way back in April 2019. And I will have a chat to Dr. Adam Cross about the native Albany pitcher plant, which is threatened by poaching in southwest of Western Australia. I hope you enjoy our trip back in time. Please stay tuned. Now, as the world is becoming more and more dependent on electronics, we're also reaching the limits of what conventional technology can achieve. And so it becomes important to find new kinds of electronic components to push through those limits. Recently, a team at Monash University in Melbourne has successfully shown that a strange type of material called a topological insulator could be used as a switch or transistor. Now, today I am speaking to team leader, Dr. Mark Edmonds, to find out what this is all about. Welcome to Lost in Science, Mark. Thank you, Chris. Good now, to be here. Now, I mentioned that this is about breaking the limits of our current technology. What kind of limits are we talking about? What are we facing here? Uh, we're facing issues with essentially what's known as Moore's Law. So in 1965, the founder of Intel or the co-founder of Intel made this prediction based on the, the trends in the data in silicon uh, manufacturing that the number of components on an integrated circuit would actually double about every 18 months. And this is held true f basically till now. But it's coming to an end, and the reason for that is the components are getting so small that they can't be really scaled down any further without uh, breaking sort of some hard limits of physics and also without having exponential increases in cost, which are just unmanageable in the industry. So that's, I guess, what we're looking towards. We're, we're trying to find new technologies that will overcome this, this issue. Okay, so when we're talking about treating electronics, we're talking about... The, the components that are in circuits we put onto um, silicon chips, mm -hmm. and these include transistors, which is the kind of thing that you're working on. Um, can you just explain to us, I guess, what a transistor is uh, and why it's an important part of a computer? Sure. So a transistor is essentially a, a very basic switch. Um, you can think about it in binary terms, one and zero, on and off. And the way a transistor works is it uses a material uh, known as a semiconductor, which is sort of in between a metal and an insulator. So under the right conditions, it will conduct, and under the, uh, another condition will actually be insulating. So with an electric field that can be applied, you can actually switch it on and off. And, and, and that's essentially the basis of your integrated chip. It's made up of billions of these little transistors that essentially are either on or off state. And by combining those, uh, you can have computing. Okay, so the switching is very important there. Now, you're trying to make a switch or transistor using topological insulators. Look, I'm not going to let you go. Can you explain how this works? Like, what is a topological insulator and how can it be used to make a switch? 
Okay, so so topological insulators are, are a new sort of material class. As I mentioned, this sort of we know that there are three material classes, a metal, an insulator, and a semiconductor. Um, a topological insulator was proposed fairly recently as this wacky sort of idea that a material might be insulating in its bulk, but conductive on its surface. So you can think about this in terms of, say, a chocolate bar. It's wrapped in, in foil, and obviously the foil is conducting, but the chocolate underneath is insulating. Okay. So, but that's obviously in that case, then the um, the the chocolate and the foil are two separate materials. But you're talking about the one material that's kind of got its own built-in wrapper. Is that what? Yeah. That is? So, I mean, if you if you coated the chocolate in gold, for example, then it would be conducting on its surface. Okay. Yeah. So the and the topological then, I guess, the name refers to the shape. As you said, like part of it, it does one thing and part of it does another thing. Is that exactly. right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So what we're talking about in terms of the chocolate analogy is for a three-dimensional material. What we're really working on is actually a material in two dimensions. So sort of thinking about just a single layer of, of atoms or a few layers of atoms. Um, and in that case, a topological insulator is actually uh, the edges of the material are conducting. So the interior right. is insulating. Okay. And when we say topological, what we mean is along those edges, it's an extremely good conductor. So are you, are you familiar with a superconductor? Yeah. That's a, um, so a superconductor is a conducting material that basically has zero resistance. Is that right? Exactly. So a topological insulator along these edges almost behaves like a superconductor. Not quite, but it's a good analogy to use. Essentially, what will happen is current will flow along these edges without any sort of interactions with impurities that might be in the material. So there's actually no heat lost when an electron bounces around going from, from one end of the material to the other. Okay, now I imagine that's very important when we're looking at you know, shrinking components down to put them onto chips, then um, heat loss is going to cause more energy use and things to heat up and that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah, so I mean... The idea is is if you can, and, and the predictions are, say, maybe uh, you can reduce the amount of energy consumed by 50% using a topological insulator. If there are a billion transistors on a single chip and there are billions of computers and phones in the world, that's a huge amount of energy that's actually going to be saved by um, introducing that into the uh, electronics world. Do you know how much energy electronics today are using? Yeah, we're obsessed with energy uh, in, in the modern world. It's, it's a about 10% of global energy consumption right. is consumed by computing. And that's actually doubling about every decade. Oh, wow. Okay, I guess yeah. We, yeah, when we think of like the big server farms that organizations like Google might have and the yeah. amount of data we're creating is definitely going to get increase and increase. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I read an article in The Age, actually, that was recently published. The data centers in Australia use up more energy than Woolworths and Coles supermarkets combined oh, in wow. Australia. And that's... Uh, I read a statistic. It was their power bill is two hundred and fifty million dollars a year. So, okay. so it's it's a lot. But you don't think about computing being this big amount of global emissions. Okay. So, so how did you make this this device or this kind of proto switch that you created? So, so maybe I'll I'll just explain uh, one thing further if it's okay. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, so it's actually very difficult to to turn off a topological insulator by itself because 
it's always conducting along these edges or along this surface. So what we had to do was find a material predicted to, to have properties that could be tuned with an electric field. So what we wanted is an, uh, an electric field would actually transition this material from a topological insulator into a conventional insulator such as glass. So then you can have this on-off switch just like a normal transistor, but when in the on state it will use far less energy. Okay. So how we make this is we, we do everything in, in, in vacuum conditions equivalent essentially to space. So we're under very clean conditions where we have very few impurities and we can grow the cleanest material. And what we do is we actually evaporate sodium atoms and bismuth atoms simultaneously onto a substrate and we grow them sort of atom by atom or layer by layer is essentially a single crystal. And, and the material that we were growing is known as sodium bismuthide. Okay. So you have shown that you can control it as an, with an electric field, whether it's insulating or not. Mm. What's the next step for the research? Uh, so the next step is, is to actually make a, a working transistor. Uh, we've, we've essentially demonstrated that we can switch this material by, by studying its electronic properties. But what we want to do is actually make one of these uh, transistors and show it can, when we flow current through, it will actually uh, turn off and on. We're not there yet. It's a long process. Uh, as you know, in science, things can take time and with incremental developments. But we're doing some transport measurements now and seeing very promising results. Brilliant. Well, um, I hope that it works out and that in the future we all have like topological computers in our pockets. I hope so too. Brilliant. <laughs> well, thanks for coming in, Mark. Yeah. I we, we have a patent on this, so I, I definitely hope so because... Oh, yeah. You're yeah. <laughs> set to make a lot from that. Okay, well, yeah. good luck with that. Yes. Thank you. Uh, that was Dr. Mark Edmonds from Monash University talking about a new achievement in topological switching. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. My guest today is PhD candidate at the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity and also a science writer and presenter who, amongst other things, studies the effect of exercise on the immune system. Catriona Nguyen-Robertson, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks for having me. Now, when I think of elite sports people, I think of very healthy people. But actually the research says when it comes to immune function, there's something a bit different. Yeah, so immediately after exercise, there's a very different effect to what happens sort of over a prolonged period. So immediately after exercise, you might have increased immune, immune function. You have more immune cells circulating around your body in the blood. Um, and they're there to protect you. And they're also better at killing anything that shouldn't be there. But several hours after you've exercised, so during the recovery, you do get a decrease in the number of immune cells that are going around your body in the blood. And they're also less able to attack. They're weakened a little bit. So you're saying if I ride my bike to work like I do every morning, at the end of the ride... I get a bit of a spike in my immune function, but then it dips down to something lower than it was before I started my bike ride? Well, it depends on how intensely you're riding your <laughs> right. bike. Okay. Um, yeah. 
but it is very much to do with the intensity of your exercise as well as a little bit the duration. So um, if you're doing sort of a longer cycle, like 20 kilometres, it's probably going to be a bigger effect than if you're riding five. And so how does this effect translate to elite athletes who are, you know, doing a lot of exercise and a lot of practice um, and probably high intensity as well? Yeah, well, they're the only ones that are really affected a lot by this. It doesn't really matter if you sit on a couch all day versus you're sort of a moderately active person. When you're an elite athlete, you're particularly around, for example, an event like a marathon, you're going to be training intensively sort of the weeks leading up to it. And that constant strain on the immune system, particularly with changing the hormones that are going around in your blood and also producing chemicals and things that can dampen the immune system. So there have been links to with elite athletes immediately after an intense training period, they might be more likely to get upper respiratory tract infections. Right. So that's that's actually what the research shows. Yeah. For example, one thing that's affected are um, a special type of immune cells called T cells. Um, oh, yes. I've heard of these T cells. Yes. Yeah. Um, and there are types of T cells that contribute to allergy and things, but also types of T cells that are more geared to fight viruses and things. And these are the ones that are affected, whereas the allergy ones are not by um, this shift after exercise. So with dampened T cells that are supposed to be fighting viruses, you might be more likely to get a virus like the cold or the flu. So I can potentially blame the cold on my exercise, but I can't blame hay fever. Correct. Right. Okay, (laughs) great. Um, So you're currently working towards your PhD. Awesome. Can you give us a bit of an overview? Yeah, well, I'm sort of working on hipster T-cells. They're sort of the new kids on the block. Um, (laughs) Is that the official name? That's my name. Great. Um, The official name is unconventional T-cells, so it's basically the same thing. So most T-cells are known to recognise peptides, which are the derivatives of proteins. But I'm looking at T cells that recognize lipids, so fats and oils, and also um, particular T cells called mate cells. They're your mates. Um, (laughs) Mate cells. Yeah, and they recognize vitamin B metabolites. So it's kind of a shift from sort of this conventional idea of all T cells recognizing peptides. Um, So I'm looking at particularly mate cells response in exercise. And these ones um, are mostly found in the gut, the liver and the respiratory tract. So you can imagine that, especially with um, these elite athletes, knowing that there's sort of a link with upper respiratory tract infection after like, you know, a marathon or something, we want to know what's going on with these T cells that are supposedly protecting that area. And um, what sort of things have you found with these mate cells, with these um, hipster T cells? What have been some of your most exciting results? Well, firstly, we wanted to see whether or not these particular mate cells um, have the shift as well, that change after exercise. So you mean they go up the and, then they, the and then they dip down after the intense exercise? Yeah, yep. um, because... We know that it doesn't happen for all types of immune cells and even all T cells. Right. Um, and so I looked at mate cells specifically and did see this shift. Right. So these are cells that are specific to the respiratory system and they're undergoing that shift. Yeah. So it's not that they're limited to the respiratory system, but um, that is one of their sort of main protective roles. Hang out, role, hang, hang out places. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> now tell me 
since you are an immunologist, there might be um, a lot of our listeners who have heard the word, but like, what does your average day look like? What do you actually do in the lab? I mean, I guess if you're looking at exercise, does that mean you get a lot of athletes to, to run a lot? Like, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? Well, for me, instead of athletes, I'm more looking at just average individuals um, and also sort of gearing towards looking at cancer patients as well, going um, undergoing different types of treatments. But basically, I'm pretty mean. I get people to cycle on a bike and then I take their blood. Um, but from that blood, I can then isolate and pick out immune cells and we have ways to sort of sort them out to pick out the ones that we're interested in from the ones that we're not. And then I look at what kind of markers they have that can tell me how active they are or um, whether they've been around for a long time or not. So you can find out, you can take the blood, what, before they do exercise and then after they do exercise and then compare what, like, um, quantitatively exactly how good of an immune cell it is? Um, so I can quantitate how frequent they are and in also look at in terms of all immune cells are the proportions changing um so i usually take before they ride the bike after two hours after and 24 hours after so that's the whole entire time that we say is recovery but i can also actually put them into a dish with cancer cells and see whether or not these immune cells can kill the cancer cells because you would expect that they would um, but sometimes with a weakened immune system, they might not. So we can compare the levels of how active they are that way. Katriona, thanks so much for coming into Lost in Science today and making all of us uh, subpar athletes out there feel much better about ourselves and our immune systems. Yeah, you're just looking out for your immune system, right? Totally. I <laughs> love it. That's the only reason you're not exercising. That is the only reason I'm not an elite sports star. Best of luck for finishing up the research. Thanks, Claire. In the history of science... Novel and innovative concepts occasionally arise from sudden left-field inspiration. Nothing shocks me. I'm a scientist. But I'd rather be remembered for my own small contributions to science. As a scientist, I don't want to prejudice my experiment. I'll let you know in the morning. I am a scientist! I think they're scientists. I bring scientists. You bring a rock star. Across Australia, on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. People who have an interest in plants have probably come across the carnivorous plant species of the world, and probably the most famous of those is the Venus flytrap, which catches its prey in its snapping jaws. There's a much bigger group of carnivorous plants, which sort of a bit more passive, I suppose. They're called pitcher plants, and they wait to some degree for insects to fall into a pitcher or sort of jug-shaped appendage that the plants have. Uh, and there are some of these that are native to Australia. I have on the line with me Dr Adam Cross from Curtin University in Western Australia to tell us about one of those native indigenous pitcher plants which can be found in WA. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, Adam Cross. No problem. Thanks very much. Pitcher plants are found all around the world uh, in various places. Are there many in Australia? We've got four 
species of fidget plants in Australia. Um, it's not a fantastic claim to fame of the sort of 150 to 200 species around the world, but we've got perhaps the most unique species on the planet down here in the southwest of Western Australia, the Albany pitcher plant. Okay, so the other ones are from far north of Queensland. Albany is obviously a temperate climate, so is is that what makes them so special? Essentially, yes. The species from North Queensland are from a group that we call the tropical pitcher plants or the genus Nepenthes. And they're a quite widely distributed group throughout the tropical regions, Borneo, the Philippines, Indonesia, areas like that. The Albany pitcher plant is from a genus known as Cephalotus or Cephalotus. And it is quite remarkable in its uniqueness. It is actually, even though it looks quite similar to these other species, on the face of its morphology, you know, the pictures have a similar shape to them. It's actually more related in a evolutionary context to cabbages, roses and pumpkins than it is to other carnivorous plants or in fact even other pitcher plants. Briefly, can you describe what the plants look like? So Cephalotus grows as almost like a small rosetted herb. It's, it's only a few centimetres high. It's not the most sort of prepossessing of plants, but it has these very striking jug-shaped pitches that can be up to sort of four or five centimetres long, almost like a, a large thumb. And they sit at about a 45 degree angle to the ground and the limb or the rip uh, of those pitches is sort of lined with teeth. So it has almost a, a little sort of a menacing mouth at the top of the pitcher. And those attract insects, up the sort of rigid wings that surround the pitcher, which are drawn by nectar. And they are sort of lured into the mouth of the pitcher where they fall in and are slowly digested and assimilated by the plant. Why have they adapted this, this uh, ability to digest insects? Well, Western Australia generally is known because we have very, very infertile soils, soils that have very low amounts of uh, plant-available nutrients in them. And Cephalotus grows down south in wet, peaty swamps that have virtually no uh, nutrients that plants need to survive. So they've found this strategy or this niche that allows them to compete with other plants where other plants really have to struggle or find other strategies to find nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus. Um, they really just sort of sit there passively and, um, and they get theirs from capturing and digesting insects. So this, this uh, structure that they've developed, this pitcher, this is obviously, if these are so distantly related to the, uh, to the other pitcher plants in, in the world, this is a great example of convergent evolution at work here. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's probably the most striking instance of convergent evolution anywhere in the plant kingdom. Cephalotus, the current estimates suggest, is about 55 million years old as a genus and there is only the one species within that genus and the genus sits alone within the family Cephalotaceae. So there are no other near relatives of this species and in fact its nearest relative is a rainforest tree from South America. So this, this plant is far, far removed from all of its relatives in the world really. Absolutely. And uh, in time. The current, yeah, the current estimates really sort of suggest that it's a, a Gondwanan era relic and it has just or its relatives have just sat in swamps down in the southwest region near Albany for tens of millions of years sort of just doing the one thing that they do best which is being carnivorous. So it's only found in this area of uh, southwest western Australia. How large is the extent of the of the population? Uh, historically it was quite extensive so historically there are records of this species that occur 
almost as north as Bustleton, down to Augusta, and across to sort of east of Albany. So a, a several hundred kilometre east-west range, and almost about a hundred kilometre north-south range. But that is one of the main focus of our research in the last sort of four or five years because the range of the species has dramatically declined. So what's its current range at the moment? Currently, the estimates that have been done through independent survey and also from our, our state government department, the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions, estimate that there is between 2,000 and 3,000 hectares only of suitable habitat left for this species. And so has anyone got an estimate of how many actual plants might be in that area? Uh, yes, we've done surveys um, now, as I say, over the last few years, and we think that there are approximately 5,000 plants left in the wild. That's not a great number to have left. What, uh, what are their major threats and how can they be protected uh, the population that's actually left? There used to be approximately 130 locations that are recorded in our state herbaria. Um, our surveys have found that over 75% of those have been lost in the last century. Mostly they've been lost to land clearing for agricultural development uh, and for the development of housing, particularly around the Albany region. But the species has a very, very strict ecological requirement. So it only grows in a particular kind of habitat, even within those swamps, where it's just wet enough but not too wet. And as such, it's also threatened by alterations to hydrology, the flow of water through habitat. And it can also be threatened by fires that are burning at the wrong kind, uh, the wrong time of year, sorry, or also fires that are too hot that actually damaged the peat, as we've seen through some of the very intensive bushfires down in the southern region in the last couple of years. There is also one rather more dubious threat um, that the species has increasingly begun facing, and that is from poaching, the illegal collection of plants, because this species has such a high horticultural value. Would that suggest that people should only buy through reputable uh, suppliers of their carnivorous plants? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it's a, a quite a challenging species to grow in the first place, uh, and a lot of people sort of struggle to keep this species alive for long periods because it's so picky in its requirement. And so a lot of people, you know, if they were to go and uh, collect this illegally, which, which it really is, you know, any poaching of our native flora is illegal, the likelihood of those plants even surviving for the couple of days after they've been collected is extraordinarily low. So the, the poaching itself can just kill individual plants and then obviously that reduces the, the, uh, the available plants to reproduce in the wild as well. Yes, uh, the species is very long-lived as well. In, single individuals live for decades at a time and it can take four or five years for a seedling to reach maturity. And we've seen evidence that entire populations have become extinct because of poaching. Okay, and are there any programs in place to help preserve the, the habitat of the Albany pitcher plant? That's one of the major focuses of our research and, and that's the sort of main call that we're making as part of our conservation work. Um, this species actually has no formal protection currently at either state or federal level. Uh, it's not listed even as a species of priority conservation interest in Western Australia. Um, and this is despite the fact that the International Union for the Conservation of Nature has listed it as vulnerable now for nearly 20 years. That said, um, it does occur in some very unique habitat down south, and that habitat is afforded state and federal protection. So there is a degree of conservation. OK, well, I guess one of the things anyone listening could do is possibly write to their local member, whether in Western Australia or any other part of the country, and insist on people sort of making some noise about it, about uh, preserving the habitat 
habitat and then preserving the, the pitch plant as a result. Absolutely. We would really urge anyone, particularly in that Albany, the greater Albany and, and Walpole, Denmark region, to do just that. Um, there was a site that was uh, a very significant population of this species that was lost to development for housing at the beginning of this year even. So development is still continuing to have a significant impact on this species, um, despite the fact that it really represents sort of the jewel in the crown of our Western Australian floristic biodiversity. It really is quite a remarkable species. Well, I hope that uh, we've helped raise some awareness of this amazingly rare and unusual plant that is hanging on in southwest Western Australia. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science to talk about the plant, uh, Dr Adam Cross. Thank you very much. And anyone listening, um, look into uh, trying to get some extra protection for this unusual and rare plant. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.